Independent film director and producer Michael Weber is bringing to this year's Santa Barbara International Film Festival a very timely film, The Conservation Game. This is Mike's second documentary, the first, called The Elephant in the Room, a few years back, also delved into the murky world of the trade in exotic and often endangered animals to private buyers. This continues that inquiry. The, the conservation game was several years in the making and doggedly tracks the meandering paths of those who promote themselves as animal lovers and conservationists, many once frequent guests on popular TV shows. Once the show is over, however, those same cuddly tigers, leopards or lion cubs disappear from sight and enter the black market where they're often sold to unknown clients. This film could hardly have been made without the remarkable dedication and the expertise of a retired Ohio policeman, Tim Harrison, who almost stumbled upon this world by chance on attending an animal auction in his home state and started to recognize certain individuals whom he had actually seen on TV. He began to connect the dots. I had come across a friend of mine handed me a couple books about this Ohio public safety officer who had all these various exploits with exotic animals that were running loose, lions, tigers, venomous snakes, everything that are going through neighborhoods and backyards. And I became really fascinated by this and I met him and I worked with him for about a year and, uh, and decided that I wanted to do a documentary on that subculture and his work specifically. And that film is called The Elephant in the Living Room. And so that was about, about 10 years ago. And that's really how I began to explore and understand and, and do that deep, deep dive, as you say. At that time, I had gone to the exotic animal auctions and I had gone undercover with Tim Harrison, this Ohio police officer. And, you know, he and, and a lot of his team were seeking to try to shut down these auctions, basically. And if you see these auctions, um, you know, they're, they, no one disagrees with the, how horrible they are and how they look, if you care at all about animals. What you have are primates, you have leopards, you have tiger cubs, all being sold out to the general public. No licenses required whatsoever, virtually no paperwork, a lot of cash. And so people, you know, coming and, and going and selling uh, monkeys, baboons, hyenas, tigers, lions, cougars, and so forth. And so uh, Tim Harrison, the, the police officer, you know, really was doing great work in trying to expose what's going on at these auctions. And then I joined him for a couple of years making that initial film. And it really was the auctions for this film that was a flashpoint that revealed something to me that led to this new movie, The Conservation Game. Witnessing an auction firsthand stirred something beyond mere curiosity in Harrison. It triggered the instincts of the investigative reporter filmmaker, the need to bring what was largely underground to light. But I ran into something at that time that I did not expect to see that was even more shocking than what I just described. That's something that the general public, the news, the media would not even know or anticipate. Now, at these auctions, there are no cameras allowed. Uh, if, if you're caught with cameras, they'll kick you out. Uh, previously, the, the police officers that I talked about, they've been chased out with ball bats and axe handles and things like that. And so there's a lot of stories about what has kind of happened when they've 
found people you know, recording what's going on there. And what I didn't anticipate seeing is that I had run into uh, celebrity conservationists that I've seen on TV, one in particular that my kids grew up watching for years and years and years. In fact, ironically, probably on that same day, my kids were probably at home even watching this very person on, on TV. I saw in person at the auction. And this person was not there to shut it down, was not there to expose what's going on. This person was participating in the auction itself. And so that needed some explanation. <laughs> you know, that was something that I did not anticipate. And, and in fact, didn't even really know how to process what was going on there. At the time I shelved it. And actually I'd kind of shelved it for five, six, seven years while I worked on other films, knowing that this was going to be something that at some point I'd have to bring off the shelf and do a proper investigation, potentially a proper film with this same public safety officer who too uh, uh, was, was so struck by what we saw that it, it warranted really its own investigation and ultimately its own film. And that is sort of the setup and the flashpoint that gets us to the conservation game. The documentary is essentially an expose devoted to bring to public view what those involved in the trade conspire to hide. The structure of the film is literally that of an investigation, which comes from the way Tim Harrison, the investigator, connects the dots, which he's already mapped with cord and thumbtacks on his office wall. But now Tim is backed by a filmmaker who can document the inquiry with long lenses and a sophisticated sound system. It took three years to connect those dots. An interesting theme in the film is also that of the passage in individuals from innocence to experience, starting with that of the, uh, the investigator himself. This is not cynicism, but a process whereby the scales drop from the eyes. Tim Harrison was once that innocent boy, fascinated by the exotic animals paraded on television, only much later to discover their true fate. I mean, we all did that, right? I mean, we all sat and watched this on TV. So. It was virtually ubiquitous across all networks and everything. We actually learned quite a bit, you know, from it too. And actually it made us animal lovers. So you see that child like in 1965, watching these shows and that's what and that then translates to his behavior out in wildlife catching little turtles and 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 frogs and things like that but then that same kid which is what's so interesting becomes someone let's say 40 years later who himself is on tv but what he and in himself is now a public safety officer but what he's experiencing is rather than what he grew up with, which is running outside catching frogs and toads, is you know what you see on TV. You do now, you know, let's say it's in in in, in uh, you know 2010 or in the 2000s, is you have people seeing what they see on TV, which is lions and tigers and cougars and things like that. They're bringing them in their homes and then they're unleashing them on the public. So now the same kid who is watching these shows is out there as an adult trying to capture uh, these animals that are running loose because of what people see on TV. Commercial television cannot be let off the hook here. Animal shows have always been enormously popular and there is no doubting their partial educational value. 
Nonetheless, the hosts and producers have never really looked seriously into the sources and the future placement of these animals. Certainly no one's ever asked whether they would end up in an American suburb, the property of a private buyer. But that became Tim Harrison's mission. I asked Mike Weber about the title Ambassador Animals, an essential part of the educational pitch in the trade. So an ambassador animal would be one that's in captivity. Maybe we bred it and then we'll bring it out to you and so that you can see it. And the idea is that if you can fall in love with the one that's in front of you, maybe you'll give money and you can fall in love with the one that you can't see in Africa or India or what have you. And so in a sense, they become sort of a quote ambassador for its uh, cousin in the wild, you know, so that lion or that tiger cub that you see here in America, that's a, a captive bred, captive born animal is a quote ambassador for the tiger in India or the the, 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 uh, the, the snow leopard in, in Nepal or something like that. Now, within the AZA zoos, they have a very strict criteria and a definition for what an actual ambassador animal is and, and, and pretty rigid, rigid criteria for how it can be used, what can be used, where it can be taken and so forth. And what we've seen happen is uh, many people who are not affiliated with any accredited uh, organization mm -hmm. like that have sort of apprehended the ambassador animal term. Uh, you can see this with exploiters all over the country who will take it and they will adopt that language and that idea and then continue to say, here's an ambassador animal, here's an ambassador animal. The term ambassador has been hijacked to raise money allegedly for wild animal conservation, as well as to place animals in zoos and wildlife sanctuaries, whose conditions, of course, are boasted as really excellent. As well as to place animals in zoos and wildlife sanctuaries, oh, I've said that, donations received for these charities can rarely be traced. I asked Mike how long these animals born to live in the wild survive in captivity. That, he says, takes us to the dark heart of the question. But what no one ever does is do a very simple thing, which is what we did, and which is I, what I did, is you actually go to look to see if that animal is in the place that they say that it's going to. Very simple. Go to the zoo that they claim that it's from. Actually look for the zoo that they claim exists. Any of those things. And what I found is these animals aren't there. The cats aren't there. These, the, the, the facilities that they actually refer to don't actually exist. And so that starts to raise more questions as to what are we being told on television about these endangered protected species and why are they not in the places that we're told that they are going to go to? And even further, why are these supposed places actually don't exist in the, anyway in some cases? Yeah. Now you start to pull back the veil. Now we start to pull back the layers of the onion to realize that something is amiss. Mike Weber is concerned with going deeper than the obvious scandals associated with the black market in these beautiful and graceful creatures. Beyond the visible brutalities of the auctions, the inferior housing for the animals awaiting sale, the renting out of animals for parties of the wealthy and the privileged, the deeper scandal is those who are responsible for the sale or rent of these lions, tigers and cougars paraded on television screens. 
or you've seen mascots, you know, at, at high schools and, and people are not so happy about that. And that's sort of going by the way of the dodo. So like we've heard of those things, right? But, and, and, we're, and we've heard of the auctions and we're, we're quite disgusted by that. The public is largely, but what we haven't considered is that, is it possible that these ambassador animals that we see on TV by our top name celebrities and conservationists like in the world that that could potentially happen to the animal that we're seeing that's sitting on that television host's lap yeah is it yeah. possible that that could happen to them and and you know obviously as we're as we're talking we know that not only is that possible that's likely and that is that is a frightening prospect if it were true. And if it is true, why is it that they are not telling us that this is what's going to happen to the animal? In the documentary world, to unearth what is amiss is one thing. The larger question is what to do about the problem, which will certainly not die out on its own. The relentless work of Harrison, which the film shows is not without danger, eventually leads to Washington, to the House of Representatives, to members of the relevant committees that deal with commerce, wildlife protection, and that of the natural world. Mike charts the lengthy legislative road through Congress, and there has, he says, after years, finally been some success. Last December, the House did pass the Big Cat Public Safety Act. What happens, this has been going on for years and years, is they push to pass this uh, federal act in Congress. And we, what we see is, I think in December, it actually passed through the House. So it still needs to make it through the Senate. And it has a <laughs> lot of momentum, but it's not over. And in fact, okay. you know, there are some technical details even in the House yeah. now that we've had you know, some turnover with the recent, uh, with, the, with the House to still kind of get it through. But there's every expectation that it'll still be fine in the House. But this year in 2021, it still is going to have to make its way through the Senate. The mills of the gods, they say, grind slow, perhaps a little slower in Washington, D.C. But Tim Harrison and his team, along with Mike Weber, have been pushing relentlessly for a federal law to replace the patchwork anarchy of state laws of varying effectiveness. And it is carefully worded to ensure the primary safety of protected wildlife species, as well as that of the public, both those who may become the owners of a lion or a tiger cub in a suburban setting, and also the neighbors who may not realize who might be living next door. The news of the law passed in the House last December. This represents a great but partial victory, but it moves on to the Senate now, this year, and we must keep our fingers crossed, wishing it a safe journey. As for Mike Weber, he's committed to seeing the bill become federal law and urges all concerned about the issue to write to their senator or their congressperson to urge support of the passage. The conservation game will be screened at the Cliff Drive-In this Tuesday, April the 6th at 7 p.m. And of course, at home online via the spiff.org website, that is until April the 10th.
to see in your comfort at home. This is Harry Lawton reporting for KCSB.